0: let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, thank you very much for a snowy evening and for a warm place to be and study your word. We'd ask that you bless our time going through uh, your servant David's life. Help us pull out the things that are beneficial. In your son's name, amen. amen. Okay, a little bit on the nature of the study. We're, it's going to be six weeks long broken up David's life in the text into six essential time frames, sections of his life. And uh, the initial things, like the map, which I did up, because if you copy some map, it has all the other places that don't really matter to this particular story, confusing you as you're looking for a name. So I just put the spots on there that were sort of key in early David's career. and. and so it will be potentially beneficial <coughs> in future weeks as well. So this this piece will not be get handed out every week. So save it close to your heart. Those well, was crumpling it.
1: Yeah, don't so crumble. You tie up then? the rhythm? Yeah, yeah. What
0: program do you yes. use? Uh, Illustrator. Adobe Illustrator. Um, it even has a scale of miles, which when people look at the... Holy Land, they don't often realize how small the dang place yeah. was. It still is. To and fro. Yeah, it's like six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, you know. Um, um, so keep that in mind, as we, we'll refer to it on occasion. On the flip side, of course, is the family trees of Saul and David, because at least in the first two weeks, Saul plays pretty largely in the storyline. And, uh, but primarily to give you a sense of David's background back to Judah. It's an interesting family tree from with a lot of uh, odd experiences. One of the interesting things is that Rahab the harlot who was saved at Jericho marries... She's David's great-great-grandmother. grandfather She married Salmon, who, and Boaz was Rahab's son. So... Um, and then he married Ruth, who was a Moabitess. First year of this woman from Jericho in the line, the next generation of a Moabitess uh, in the line of David. And then Obed, Jesse, and, and, and David, this the son is of not Jesse. Pure, is what we're saying. Um, pure bread. Mm-hmm. And I gave vague dates off to the side because 1600 BC over here at the level of Hezron, Hezron was one of the people that entered. Uh, the land of Egypt with uh, Jacob when when all the Israelites first went into Egypt and Hezron was one of the seventy that went in. So we know that that's around his life is around 660 um, BC. And Rahab, since she saved at Jericho during the conquest, it's around 1400 BC. And then David is born around 1040 BC. Um, Gives you a, at least a, some place to put it, and it's a, um... um hello? Hello? Someone's happy. Um, you're looking in a time frame that uh, is pretty major in antiquity. Uh, the, uh, the ancient Greek world, or the uh, uh, Achaean-Trojan War period, has already dropped off around 1200 BC, a major upheaval in the Mediterranean, which brings about some of the storyline that we have with David with the migrations of the Sea Peoples. Um, uh, This is sort of a rebuilding time, which allows the glory moment of Israelite history, David and Solomon, to, uh, you might say, function without pressure from the outside. The Mesopotamian nations are in abeyance and so is Egypt. Egypt is, is on downward slide and so uh, Judah, Israel, is able to get established for a bit without their involvement. Um, quite a few wives, don't know how many total because are some c- c- circumstance. there are various wives and at least ten concubines for David. Um, and we will again refer back to this in, in uh, future parts of the story. Um, the first section in David's life um, we don't have his, his family line although it is, we have the record of it from Judah down to him uh, and books like Ruth are part of his lineage uh, and probably the reason it's in the Bible is its involvement in David's um, uh, lineage Um, There's not anything really about David's earliest, you know, his growing up, his being born. He's the last kid, maybe the last boy kid, of seven or eight, depending on which text you look at, seven or eight brothers. Um, There is some supposition that he, the psalm where he says, in sin did my mother conceive me was actually a reference to his mom's um, deception of her husband, like Tamar had done, Judah, uh, to get pregnant because um, her husband uh, uh, wasn't going to her, and uh, that that deception made him think that she had played the harlot, and she hadn't, and David was the kid. That's an old Jewish myth, um, not biblical at all, but that there may have been some tension in the family regarding David. You pick a little bit up of it in this first section. The first section goes from 1 Samuel 16 down through 1 Samuel 20. Uh, the, the range of the Bible study is going to go all the way through 2 Samuel uh, and slops a little bit over in the 1 Kings, and there'll be some pickup information in 1 Chronicles. Um, as we get to those places, a lot of 1 Chronicles is just a repeat of uh, some of the Davidic stories. Well, first we have, uh, as the sort of the political background, uh, Judah, Israel has had a king, Saul, who was anointed by Samuel. Saul is um, popular, after a fashion, and but not entirely adequate. And he has just, in the previous chapter, disobeyed God in um, a command and Samuel withdraws God's approval from him Samuel the prophet withdraws it and um, Saul knows it's been withdrawn from him he's still physically king but he's been um, um, rejected by God and so this first part in 1st Samuel 16 now I've trimmed where the spaces are is where I've trimmed out verses that are more of the description or more of the events that happened I was trying to put enough on the pages that were the things we wanted to look at, um, but you'll notice the the verse jumps, but I apologize for not putting all of it on there, but paper is paper. Um, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, seeing I rejected him for being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Sam was afraid to go. God gives him a cover story of offering a sacrifice because he thinks Saul will kill him if he finds out he's out to do this. Um, And so he goes to Bethlehem to offer sacrifices, consecrates Jesse and his sons, and starts to look the sons over. They get trotted out in front of Samuel one at a time. Eliab, the oldest first. And Eliab, much like Saul, is powerful and tall and, you know, and Samuel pretty convinced this has got to be the guy. Uh, The Lord says no. And the famous quote that comes here in verse 7, the Lord said to Sam, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Back in chapter 9-2, that's how Saul was picked. He was a head taller than everybody else um, and handsome. Look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, it's a well-known passage, and my mom quoted it to me and countless Sunday school teachers and, and the rest, because it's, a, it's, it's it, it has the sound of meaningfulness, and it is. Um, what's interesting uh, to me about David's life is this is almost um, a thematic verse. David's life is really not just... Who David was in the heart, even in his sin, who he was in his heart, but how people perceived him negatively, like Saul appears, use uh, him, or um, other followers of his who are favor in favor of David, but but not for the right, for the outward reasons. You know, great military leader, um, good-looking kid. You know, uh, all the chicks dug him. Uh, that sort of that sort of thing. So when the idea of looking at the heart is in terms of our own application are we the kind of people that can distinguish between the heart and the appearance and the height of the individual you know I'd like to sometime make a bible movie about Jesus where he's a short chubby Jew you know like Woody Allen or something you know that 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 not the not the noble, you know, strong jawed, piercing glare, you know, all the bells and whistles about about what makes us feel spiritual about a person, but that the spirituality was evident in his teaching and in whom he was, not not what he looked like. We tend to um, um, we're looking at people in any circumstances. Man does look at the outward appearance. Uh, we can't avoid that. We will make those sorts of assessments. God looks at the heart and so when we want our portion of our assessments of others or we want to be assessed by others, uh, we want to be sure that we're considering the heart aspect and that our reaction to the heart aspect is the right reaction. Um, uh, we forgive women who are beautiful of all sorts of crimes. We can't imagine the guy who looks so, looks so trustworthy, a used car salesman or something, could be so untrustworthy. When it gets into this, when he, he goes through all the sons, God's saying, no nope, 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 all the way down the line. He asks, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready, I mean, red, uh, Whether well, that means he was uh, reddish-skinned or red-haired, we don't know, but ruddy means red. Had to have beautiful eyes and was handsome. With initial physical appearance, uh, David comes across pretty well. And the Lord said to him, "Arise, anoint him, for this is he." The interesting thing is, even though he was had beautiful eyes and was handsome, and God does not say because we don't look into the outward appearance, doesn't mean the person who is the right person in the heart won't be. It's like it's not that ugly people must be the Lord's anointed, uh, but uh, uh, it's, it's completely a uh, completely um, um, distinct. It's not an either or, a completely distinct category. So the Lord uh, has Samuel anoint him. And um, uh, Sema goes off to Ramah, which, on your map, is just north of Jer- Jemus, Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in red. Uh, Gibeah is right north of Jerusalem, and Ramah is just north of that, just a couple of miles north of, of uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not a Jewish city at this point. It's called Jebus at the time, um, a Jebusite city. Um, um uh, he's trying to avoid Saul. He said after he rejected Saul, um, he never saw him again until he died. Um, now Saul has go- taken a turn for the worse. Uh, the Lord's spirit has been removed from Saul, and an evil spirit has been sent by God. And we don't know the nature of the evil spirit. It says the evil spirit, is kind of a craziness. Um, malignancy, a, a uncontrolled rage uh, falls upon him. Um, what the nature of that evil spirit is, we don't know. But it, they seemed, everybody on the spot knew what had happened. They knew that an evil spirit had possessed him. Not in the demonic possession sense that we could suggest something like that. But what's interesting is it could be cured by music. And so and everybody knew that too. It's common medical practice, I guess, to play music for uh, nutcases, and uh, uh, it calmed him down. And so he asked for somebody for that. And David has a reputation already. One of the guys in the court says, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. A really good reputation to have for just a shepherd boy. Uh, From a few miles away but he's got a reputation of being some things that are the external valuable things in a society the man of valor the man of war uh, but the prudence and good presence and the lord's presence in him uh, were more heart things that, that he was getting a reputation on both sides of that and david's followers end up picking one of those two one of those two ways sometimes with great complexity so David comes to the court and he, 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 he plays for Saul. Saul is calmed. It says Saul loved him greatly in verse 21. That changes. I mean, the, the, and it changes for um, essentially because of the next big story. That's the big section we have here all in one piece, which is um, the story of uh, Goliath. Now David's been employed at the palace, going back to Bethlehem, back and forth um, uh, from Saul to home, and, and working at home and playing for Saul and working at home. Um, and the Philistines come up against Israel. Now the Philistines are a they're a real interesting group. Uh, this is a Philistine. And that's an actual picture of what's called the Peliset, where we get the name Philistine. Um, the, uh, in about 1200 B.C., right around the fall of Troy, and Troy may have been part of this, uh, the fall of the Hittite Empire, uh, a major migration came up out of the Black Sea of a bunch of seagoing uh, peoples. They're called the Sea Peoples in the ancient uh, inscriptions because they were just a collection of nations, tribes, uh, the Cheker, uh, the Wakesh, uh, um, the Shekalesh. Which is a great name. Sounds like a boogie uh, funk band. The um, uh the, uh, the Danoi, uh, a lot of different tribes. Uh, you know, upwards of maybe fifteen tribes migrating with their families and their goods and their wagons all along the coast of Asia Minor, down the uh, uh, down the Levant, past Palestine, into Egypt. A major battle is fought in Egypt, uh, in the Nile. Uh, during the reign of Ramses III. This inscription, this picture, is from the tomb of Ramses III, where he gives an account of that battle, uh, of his defeat of the Sea Peoples. Um, so mid-1100s B.C., about 100 years prior to David. So the Peliset, uh, one of those tribes, ended up settling in uh, Canaan, Philistia, here along the coast, there are five cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron. Those are the five lords of the Philistines. Those are the five Peleset cities that get founded uh, in this great migration. So the Philistines come onto the scene um, as a, uh, you might say, a contrary people to the Jews who have come into the land during the judges, during the conquest and then the judges. The Philistines are coming in during that time frame as well and getting established on the coast. Um, So they show up at Sukkah, which is just up from Gath. Uh, You see Gath here, and Sokka is right there along the same river. And that's the valley, the Valley of Elah, that uh, Goliath and that contest occurs at. Not that many miles from uh, Bethlehem. Looks like about maybe... Fifteen miles or so from Bethlehem, and uh, the armies of Israel. Uh, the 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 capital of the Israelites at this time is at Gibeah. Uh, Saul lives at Gibeah, and uh, so he's taking the army down there to Soka and uh, to contend with the Philistines. Um, The standard in antiquity at this point, this is uh, very much in the Iliad, very much in other uh, ancient uh, uh, Mediterranean hero stories, it's champion warfare. Uh, You have big armies, but they always put their champions, Hector, Achilles, uh, various people like that, out, and they fight it out. Uh, And the rest is just mop-up. That When it goes bad for one of them, the armies then engage and, and uh, kill each other, and the same thing is being used here. He even calls him this in the text. there came up from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Now we're not sure if uh, Goliath was a Philistine Peliset member, or whether he is residual giant material from the conquest. I give you a verse here on the margin Joshua eleven twenty two there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. The Anakim were the giants that that uh, Joshua defeated at Hebron. Hebron used to be uh, called Kiriath Arba. And Kiriath Arba was the city of Arba. Arba was the father of Anak. The guy Arba was the father of Anak. And this, the Anakim were like were giants. And so the various giants that that show up in the, uh, the kings and Samuel uh, and the like are descendants of these giants how big they were we don't know originally but maybe some of the giants interbred with the Pellicet and Goliath is a you know he calls himself a Philistine um, so he's got or he's a mercenary working for the Philistines or something like that but that's, that was pretty standard I mean a little bit later in next week David becomes a mercenary for the Philistines. So it's pretty common that other nationality groups would be working for you. Well, he's obviously a big guy, six cubits in a span. It's nine and a half feet, okay? Nine and a half feet, um, sizable. Uh, and it gives the measurements of things like his armor, uh, how much it weighed, uh, 5,000 shekels of bronze. The haft of his spear, verse 7, was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. Um, those measurements, I give you the approximation given the various shekel size uh, weights that are out there, that's the range of possibility on the armor, 110 pounds to 187 pounds depending on the shekel. And the same with the spearhead, 13 to 22 pounds for the spearhead. Um, you say, well, that's a, well. he's nine and a half foot tall. You know, the guy's got to be approaching a ton himself, you know. but. You say, well, isn't that still a lot of weight for him to be carrying up to, you know... The average plate armor in the Middle Ages, if you're jousting, was 100 pounds. That's heavy. Battle armor would be like 50. So, for a normal-sized guy, 50 pounds, the fact that Goliath is wearing 110 pounds of armor, not a problem, you know. Uh, So it's not... Things seem to be aligning correctly in your image. This is a very... Uh, you might say, realistic story, not so fanciful, other than the fact you might have a problem with a nine-and-a-half-foot guy. Goliath comes out, and he does the usual challenge, um, and scares the bejeebies out of the Jews. Um, and he's offering to fight anybody, and if whoever wins, wins the field. Um, Now it says in verse 12 that David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, and it says that his Jesse's other sons, three oldest, had been, were were in the army and they were down at the field. Um, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema, and it says David went back and forth to Saul. Now a lot of people think that there's confusion between the getting hired as the singer for or the musician for Saul earlier, and Saul doesn't seem to know him. At the end of the Goliath account, but it lets you know in the middle of the story, David's been going back and forth from Saul. I mean, he's, and so possibly Saul's mental acuity, not entirely great, um, or his closeness to David as a musician wasn't that close, but whatever the case, it seems to um, um, validate um, um, those two stories working together. so Jesse decides to send David down to visit the sons, sends them with some uh, supplies to drop off um, with the army, and David shows up just in time to hear Goliath ranting against the army again, and uh, he uh, um, flip the page over, and it says, and David heard him, in verse 23. Um, everybody's afraid, and David's response, because remember, we're looking at David, not just for the description of him. Ruddy, handsome, good eyes, man of valor, prudence, etc. But we see in the narrative what kind of person he is. Um, He starts talking to various um, people about what was the king going to promise to the person that kills this guy? Because, in verse 26... For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, you'll, throughout this story, David's, the place of his heart is not personal aggrandizement, nor is it Israel's aggrandizement, or Saul's aggrandizement. It's the Lord's aggrandizement. He is, he, he is defending the name of God in this situation. His brother, his eldest brother, Eliab, gets angry with him and says, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And this sounds like two brothers. This really does. I know what you're like. And David said, What have I done now? Which sounds like this is a pattern of behavior between Eliab and he, or perhaps all of his brothers and he, that they're always ragging on little brothers. And he's down there to see the, you know, he, the older brother, see the battle. You want to you get your taste of, of, of what it's like. And David says, was it not but a word? For heaven's sake, Eliab. Lighten up, Francis. And again, there is the presumptions we find in David, and David becomes like Abraham for the Jews, that Christ is a descendant of David is a big thing. This is the hero of heroes. For all of his flaws David is is like Alexander the Great. I mean, he's a great-looking guy, and he's great in battle, and he writes songs. Um, just a, a, a tremendous, and um, establishes the kingdom uh, of Israel. Uh, but there's a real personality to him that, that has that youth. It, it, he speaks like a youth. Not only does Eliab see him as a, upstart, and you shouldn't be here. What are you doing here? David talks like he's, you know, little brother. And okay, So he keeps on talking to various people. He, he sort of ignores his brother and keeps on talking to various soldiers about what the gains were. So the gossip in the army gets back to Saul. And uh, so Saul wants to hear from this young man who's talking smack about the Philistine. Who is going to let this uncircumcised Philistine um, get away with this. And David said, I'll, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. And it, it's playing into that model of what Eliab suspects or what David's remarks seem to sound like. Um, Saul makes the same comment. He says, you were not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. We don't know how young David is. He's probably late teens. Um, but still, uh, uh, still not fully come into whatever kind of mass um, because of later with the armor problem that he tries on. Um, he hasn't come into that sort of uh, uh, strength yet, but he's, uh, he's old enough to try. And David then comes back and says, let me tell you something about my background. And this is the only information we have of David's pre-Goliath you know, um, life. You know, that he killed a lion and a bear defending the sheep. And he killed them without a problem. Grabbed him by the beard and uh, smote him and killed him. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. We're looking for someone with the right heart. God was looking for someone with the right heart. This was a guy who, out by himself, his heart did the right things. He wasn't, as Christ describes later, like a hireling who runs away when the sheep are threatened. He takes his responsibilities. He's all alone. He's not, I think one of the congressmen a number of years ago, J.C. Watts, said uh, character is what a man does when nobody's looking. Well, nobody was looking to see whether or not he... Was. Do the right thing by the lion or the bear, but he he took care of. um didn't lose it. She lost the map already. This is yours. We can chair. Look, I can reach it. If you guys can't stop fooling around over there, it's her. <laughs> it's always her. But David, David has the kind of heart that he sees his responsibility, and he's willing to put himself forward, whatever strength he has, to achieve his responsibilities. It's, it's, and in this situation, as he's, he's not even in the army, he's not the hired shepherd that the rest of the armies are. The rest of the armies are soldiers, that are supposed to do this. One of those guys is supposed to step forward. But none of them have, none of them would, and the responsibility that someone needs to take to defend the name of a living God against an uncircumcised Philistine, it needs to be done. And he trusts the Lord, verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul is moved by his confidence and lets him go. Tries to dress him up in armor. He can't even walk. It says he tried in vain to go, but he was not for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I'm not used to them. And David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in his shepherd's bag or wallet. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. Now when I was young, it was like, you know, Dennis Damas with his slingshot or, or it was um, uh you had the sense that oh this is this is so weak this is so small this is, now it's just a different weapon slingers have been used in ancient armies whole contingents of them this was everybody some armies required that every soldier know how to use a sling because it was such an effective weapon and people who were good at it um, one tribe in the Balearic Isles the kids wouldn't get fed until they could hit the food with their sling you know they they had to throw. At the bread, they had to be able to hit the um, hit the loaf of bread with a rock before they could eat it. Uh, some people got very good at this, so it's not like something odd. In fact, I've given you pictures of slinger stones that have been found at various sites. The, the top one from a site an Iron Age site in Britain. The others later are Greek Greek slinger stones that made them out of lead. They molded them out of lead like bullets. I like the Greek ones because they have thunderbolts on one side. And the other other phrase, the phrase "take that," which is just is almost too cool. Here, take that, whack. Mm-hmm. The, or some of the early uh, people who wrote about slingers actually thought these lead stones would melt in flight; they were going so fast they'd turn to molten lead and then hit the target. They weren't right. It doesn't actually happen. Um, but but slingers are yeah we're, we're a major see them in inscriptions see pictures of them. Um, uh, for many, many years, um, uh, so it's not a not an odd thing. Uh, so Goliath comes up and sees what he's up against. Disdains him because he, like anybody else, looks on the outward appearance, and I at least a pretty boy, a pretty boy, comely in appearance, and a youth. Because you're nine and a half feet tall you expect them to put out somebody who's at least approaching your weight class, you know, that at least going to, I think I saw part of the movie Troy the other day. I've never watched the movie Through with Brad Pitt. Don't finish it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, it didn't seem like really? worth it. But they have a champion warfare at the beginning where Achilles kills this guy. Um, and this is exactly a big, big, big fella. Achilles comes out and kills him in one shot and, and done with it. Um... And this has all that kind of drama, the, the, uh, uh, the oversized opponent, the, the, the scrappy youth. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine, that's verse 43, the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Tonight. So nice and they'll smack. Yeah. Um, uh, probably pretty standard, you know, the Philistine had some, probably said something similar, but they didn't record the speech so much, you know. He defied him by his gods. David defies him by his god. So, the, you have this idea that David, from the very first, when it says it describes him, the Lord is with him, when that young guy who described it to Saul, the Lord is with him. And since his anointing, the Lord had been with him. And now you see this evidence of David with the Lord. This is his his it's more about God than it is about Israel. It's more about God than it is about political greatness. David takes him down with the sling, cuts his head off, the armies are routed, they chase them all the way down to Gath and Ekron, killing them as they go. And then they loot all the all the baggage of the of the armies. Um, And everybody's thrilled. Everybody's thrilled. Especially um, Saul. He's thrilled. Who is this guy? Doesn't seem to recognize him. He asks Abner, his commander. Abner is Saul's cousin, which you can see on the back of this sheet. Saul, Abner. Their fathers were brothers. Kish and Myrrh. Um, and so Abner finds out, now Abner plays later in the story of David, pretty pronouncedly, as a good man though he picks the wrong sides and fights, that's the basic um, uh, but he's a, he's a follower of Saul and he's in the family of Saul, um, and David comes up and introduces himself and says, this is who I am Saul's son, Jonathan, here in chapter 18, is... Um, Really impressed. Jonathan's quite a bit older than David. Um, almost, almost separate generations. We don't know how much. Because we don't really know how old David is here, but, you know, maybe late teens. Um, but what I noticed about Jonathan's reaction, it says, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. When I ask about you know viewing people in terms of what is their human appearance or their appearance in the and the, the, what we're allowed to do and be in the company of this world's kingdoms you know our talents, our capabilities, our strengths our 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 wealth, our power um, and secondarily, it's our heart and Jonathan has a response there's a lot of great soldiers of the day. there's a lot of great, People. Uh, Saul was a great soldier. Uh, Jonathan was a tremendous soldier. You go back earlier in First Samuel. Jonathan's own exploits are are really like Herculean. I mean, he is a, a pretty remarkable, a pretty remarkable soldier. He's knit to David in his souls. You know, it, what I'd like to consider is that when we find the heart, the kind of heart that is, uh, the Lord is with. And that is with the Lord. That idea of David, he's, he is. The Lord is with him, and he is with the Lord. That's, that's the point of service. That's the responsibility he's taken on in killing Goliath. We find ourselves, if we share that, we are knit to those people. We're, it's the nature of the church. Uh, when people are regenerated, the love for the brethren is one of the elements of assurance that we know that we're saved. It's because we love the brethren. We, we are knit to them. We have a closer relationship uh, First John talks about uh, uh, the new commandment that the church has, which is to love one another. You know, love your neighbor as yourself is always there. But you notice even there, love your neighbor as yourself, this idea, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That, that, that's the kind of response that even is more, the, 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 it becomes more acute when there's, there's a shared heart. When there's a shared heart uh, I was talking to someone about the nature of friendship Lewis talks about it in uh, the four loves about you get knit together with friends because you share a heart about something there's a, a place where your mind goes that your friend's mind goes to you may even disagree about the thing entirely but you both go there that's where your 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 sensibilities lie where your affections lie and you meet somebody who has those same affections and um, and you become uh, lifelong friends. So we, we, we want to be looking for not just the... the we want to be set apart from the rest of humanity by not looking at outward appearance, looking at their heart, finding the heart that shares the Lord in them and the, they in the Lord, and be n- knit to them. Um, and David goes on to great success. Jonathan says, this is, this is my boon companion. Jonathan stands out. Jonathan never takes... I oh, mean, he's on David's side. But he ends up dying in, in Saul's service. And he, he never, you know, is on David's team. Uh, and in David's... He doesn't survive. To uh, so David is, is powerful. But, uh, um, but he, is, he is clearly the one definite person in David's camp. Um, David goes on to success. Now... The people of Israel are thrilled about David. You find this, it says in verse 6, as they were coming home when David returned from slaying the Philistine, this is right after Goliath, the women came out from all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with timbrels, songs of joy, and with instruments of music. This is why guys go to war, because the chicks come out and sing to us when we're done. And when Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah, and they're coming along the road, and the girls are singing, Saul has slain his thousands but David, and David his tens of thousands. Hmm. that, that, that That thousands just dries up in Saul's mind. Now the distinction, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. It's it's so true. You couldn't. You know, this is good TV. This is this is good uh, movie plot material. Um, but but what is going on morally spiritually is where Jonathan has looked at this other great soldier and gone, what a what a dude. Jonathan doesn't seem to be bothered by it. Saul's really bothered by it. When we are. When we love someone as our own selves, so we love your neighbor as yourself. When we love the brethren, when we outdo one another in showing honor, um, when we when we are constantly thinking of the joy of this knit together with this common with this common heart, our self-interest that is in wicked people is preeminent. Wicked people's self-interest is preeminent. It cannot and you meet anybody who struggles with any kind of rebellion against God, whether it be Christians in rebellion, non-Christians in rebellion, the basic choice that they have not made is they haven't bowed the knee to God. They continue to bow the knee to themselves. And when you continue to bow the knee to yourself, that yourself is preeminent, anybody pulling ahead and getting said tens of thousands is going to tick you off in a big way. And to the point where next time he goes a little crazy and David's playing for him, because that's his job, Saul says, I'm going to kill him, and tries to kill him. Tries to run him through twice with a spear, and David evades him. Saul then assigns him to a military unit and was afraid of him. Um, Verse 13, so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. He got got rid of him. This is what happens to the righteous. Saul, well, David is going to go through. Um, Wait, well, I didn't tell you this at the beginning, but the name David means loving. Same, you know, it's it's sort of act. Uh, but but his uh, he goes through many years of of loss and uh, on the run, um, hiding from Saul. Um, because, what, like I've, gone, I've been thinking of this passage for quite a bit, from whence comes wars and fightings among you, is it not your passions that wage war in your members? You ask, you do not receive, because you ask wrongly, to spend on your own desires. Saul is in that camp. He's a, he sees David as a contender for his same place on earth. And he, he's right. God has anointed David, king over Israel. Saul has anointed him, but there's a functioning king right now, Saul sees it clearly as this advancement of David, this popular youth, um, and it becomes a uh, uh, an impossible thing for him to accept. Um, the, the tendency for the wicked is to push those people away, to avoid them, to just get them off there, and so he assigns David to some other place. Um, they want us gone as much as your brethren in Christ want you there. That's... Now, we get then to get introduced to David's first wife, as far as we know, first wife. Um, uh, Michael, uh, Saul's daughter. Uh, there had been a promise of a daughter to be married to the killer of Goliath. Uh, Mirab was the first daughter available. Saul promised her to David, then married her to somebody else, kind of spitefully. And then offered, then realized, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him, for he thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. He was figured, I've got somebody in my family I can use, I can use against this, this upstart. Um, Michael really loves David. I mean, she's, she's and, I, and I am surmising that it's not like Jonathan's love it's David's a pretty impressive. Remember, all the girls have been singing about David. I mean, who wouldn't like that? And who wouldn't? A young girl in the palace, and here's this guy and he's just killed the giant, and I mean, you can't ask for much more. She loves him, that's certain. But there are people in Israel who follow David. Um, it's not everyone who loves the righteous that love them because of the righteousness. Because David is also successful. And if you have a, I say, a rich, righteous guy, and some girl comes up to him and wants to marry him, the question is, does she love him for his money or for his righteousness? This is a difficulty. And it may be just as much love on the girl's part, the fact that she is financially driven rather than spiritually. Well, that's just a, a difference of her soul. We get the impression from Michael's career later on that, um, that she's not entirely on David's page. Uh, she's not sharing the heart that Jonathan seemed to share with David. So they, 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 they fish David in with, oh, I've got another daughter, and, and maybe you'd like to marry her, and how about you do this? And the idea was to use that possibility to get him killed by saying, I want the foreskins of 100 Philistines. And David says, show enough. Out he goes, kills 200, delivers a chest full of 200 Philistine foreskins, uh, doubles the bribe price, 200 dead guys just for the asking. Which, you know, we, we're not going to stop and chat about the state of the age, but um, a lot of people would, with modern views on war and peace and, and the like might find this a little bit hard to take, that just wanted killing for the sake of a girl's hand in marriage. Um, David seemed to view it as pretty easygoing. But in verse 28 there in that section, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that all Israel loved him, Saul was still more afraid of David. So, David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Now, the, uh, um, you can see the build, the slow build of David's character being slowly revealed and almost confusion at the bad response he's getting from from people, when he deals with Saul's anger at him, he doesn't know what's going on. It's a brutal time, and kings would kill um, people on a whim, friends. I mean, Alexander does it with uh, Cleanthes. Is that the guy he kills? One of his friends, you mean? Yeah, one of his friends were there because he questioned him, and he was drunk, and so he ran through with a spear. And then felt very bad about it. Um, it was a it was a different kind of uh, a different kind of world. Even the most civilized of people were treating human life with a certain cavalier approach. But the the enemy status confuses David because he's only done good for the king. You know, I don't know if David has forgotten he was anointed king over Israel. I doubt that. That's probably a big moment uh, for him, but. Um, He's not trying to undermine Saul. As a matter of fact, he labors to not undermine Saul. Well, Saul tries to have David, I mean, overtly, not trick him anymore. He orders his servants to kill Jonathan and the servants to kill David. And Jonathan remonstrates with Saul and reminds him. Dave, Jonathan goes to the issue and says, hey, he's done a lot of good for you. You saw it, verse 5, and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Now sometimes when the wicked and the righteous are bumping up against each other and the wicked naturally just because they see the ascendancy of the righteous, they start to carp at it. If someone can remind them that, hold it, this guy hasn't done anything to you, their own conscience will bother them. It bothers Saul. He, he repents of his murderousness. He says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And so David is able to come back into Saul's uh, company. But then he's playing for him again in the courtroom. Saul goes crazy again, tries to kill him again. And, and, and David escapes. And in this case, I mean, it's like, it's like intrigue in a country manor house. He's running around the palace looking for some place to hide. The the emissaries of Saul are now trying to kill him in the palace. And he's living with his wife, Michael. And so Michael tells him, you better go out the window. Because if you don't go out the window by morning, you're going to be dead by morning. She hides a teraphim in the bed, a household god, and uh, with goat's hair on the top. And that fools the guards after David has escaped. And and, uh, Saul is very upset at Michael for helping David escape. And she lies to Saul. She says in verse 17, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? That gave me a, a kind of a, different than Jonathan. Jonathan defended David and David's righteousness and convinced Saul not to do it, at least for a time. Michael, there's two things that are, she, yeah, she's on David's side. She's He's her husband. But Michael is, uh, she's got a household god. What's she got? What? you know, it says, I think, image. She took an image. Now, it's a, a teraphim of a, um, a small god and puts it in the bed. What's she doing with one of those? And what's she doing lying after the fact? We see that the people, even who are on David's side, and this this is the story of David's life, how they end up acting. A lot of David's comrades become David's stumbling block. Sometimes David's comrades become David's help. But whatever the case, it's the what kind of people are they people knit to David because they shared the same love for God, or are they people who were knit to David because David's star was in the ascendant and they liked David and they liked David for all those human reasons? The weird thing right here, I put it in here not because I had any point to make, David has fled to Samuel at Ramah. Saul hears about it, so he sends a bunch of troops up there to get him, and all the prophets, the students of Samuel are prophesying, which from what I gather is a a heavily nudity involved thing, because it seemed like prophets took off their clothes when they prophesied, as we gathered. Um, But every company, I think he sends three companies of soldiers up there, and when they get close to Samuel and see the prophets prophesying, they start prophesying themselves, the soldiers do. And then finally Saul goes up, and he starts prophesying, and takes all his clothes off. Lay naked all that day and all that night. Maybe we could never make a movie out of the biblical story because of all the hairy guys running around naked. What that, you know, that's just sort of a, a historic aside, but how that, it's a, it's a metaphysic that we don't really understand because we don't necessarily have prophets in our own midst. Um, it says we should always desire to prophesy, and the fact that in antiquity, even bad men like Saul, I mean, clearly almost possessed men, would fall under whatever kind of uh, urging that was metaphysically and be uncontrollably prophesying. Um, so, but I leave that without application. <laughs> Keep your clothes on. In chapter 20, I, I left out the first 30 verses of chapter 20. It is a long accounting of Jonathan and David discussing whether or not Saul wants to kill David. David sure he does Jonathan doesn't think he does uh, because he hasn't been told anything but in turn David thinks Jonathan's been left out of the loop and he has one way to find out he says when I don't show up for the next dinner at the new moon when Saul asks where I've been you give him this reason if he says oh okay then he doesn't want me dead if he loses it he wants me dead you know if he if his response to my absence is anger, then we can be sure he wants me dead. And that's exactly what happened. It tells the story in the first 30 verses of, of Saul's response to Jonathan's, uh, uh, Jonathan's uh, uh, excuses that David made. David is hiding out by a certain field, and they've got a certain signal that Jonathan is going to use to let him know, yeah, it doesn't look good for you. And this is the beginning of, Saul, of David's years on the run where he goes off and works for the Philistines for quite a while and marries a few more women, and and, uh, uh, the time between now and when he becomes king. Uh, But this is the final break with Saul. And um, Saul finally loses it against Jonathan, calls him all sorts of names, um, and calls his mother names, uh, in very sexually graphic terms, And he points out to Jonathan what is very clear to Saul. What I said about Saul earlier, his own self is preeminent. He says in verse 31, For as long as the son of Jesse lives upon the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. That's what's in Saul's mind. He says, my son, you're my oldest son, you're going to have the kingdom. Don't you realize you're giving away the kingdom? Don't you realize Saul comes across very much like a uh, the king in that Till We Have Faces when he's just concerned about his kingdom and not about his daughter's life. Oh, but that it's, it's not speaking Greek to Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't care about, remember, as his own soul. He loved him as his own soul. John, Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul cast a spear at him to smite him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. That's an understatement. He's been trying to kill people left and right um, uh, and now he tries to kill his own son, which which says he's not that concerned, that Jonathan is not concerned for the kingdom. If he's willing to kill Jonathan, really all that is hiding Saul's own um, frustration, frustration, um, you saw it back when he made a comment about uh, back when Samuel tore the kingdom from him. He didn't want so- Samuel to leave him, lest he look bad in front of the people. You know, um, you know, come and stay and eat with me, so I, I, you don't undermine me. Um, and Samuel does, but there is a uh, there is a self-absorption here that even family duties. He uses Michael to try to under. Uh, he marries off even the other daughter to someone, just to spite David. So there's there's all sorts of uh, uh, when, when here the Lord's presence has been removed from Saul, he still is king, and he's trying to grab hold of it to the very end. Um, when we see someone respond, have you ever talked to somebody about someone that they're supposedly really friends with, but then you hear some sort of complaint come out of their lips or some sort of how they really view the person. We're not just looking at the hearts of David or our own hearts, what kind of people we are, but we're going through life hearing the hearts of other people. We hear what, how they're responding. This tension between self-preeminent people and the Lord-preeminent people um, starts to show up in their speech. So just like David was able to prove to Jonathan that he wants me dead by the way he responds to a particular piece of information that's pretty innocent. Um, We hear that out of people all the time. They don't have the right um, grace. Um, Jonathan's mind, like I said, naturally turns to a defense of David and his motives and and what he has, what he's really like. And when, so Jonathan goes out to the field, warns David. They know they're saying goodbye. This really is goodbye for them. Um, They don't run into each other again. Um, And uh, Jonathan says this, verse 42, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for as much as we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is the split-off point. But I like the image that the knit together of the righteous is because the Lord, in the name of the Lord, is between us. That is the knitting thing. That's where our hearts need to be. When you meet somebody of an entirely different theological persuasion, but you see that the Lord is big in their windshield, you feel far more knit together with them than you might feel with uh, uh, someone of your own doctrine who does not share the bigness of Christ the Lord in their mind. I had a friend years ago who, back when Promise Keepers was going on, I don't know what you thought of that, but he had been to Promise Keepers and he went back to church that Sunday and he went to an um, Orthodox Presbyterian church and as it's called the the Church of 10,000 Theologians. Um, They're all very agreed to each other. They can't stand any disagreement theologically. And the guys were ragging him about going to Promise Keepers and the guy said, the best fellowship I've had. I haven't had that kind of fellowship here where I agree with all you guys. I didn't agree with any of them, but I had great fellowship with them. Now, that's what I think happens for people who, if they made the Lord big, if the Lord is with you and you with the Lord, when you meet others who are, the Lord is with them and they're with the Lord, that is a, um, that is the Lord between you and in the name of the Lord that's what we should be um, encouraging in ourselves. All the time realizing there's a lot of nuanced relationships inside the church that are trying to look like great Christian fellowship but are either just great human friendships or just great uh, connections that don't have to do with the Lord. Well, I managed to, in the course of one hour, almost precisely, get through four pages, And a handout. Very simple. So next week we'll be starting up with David's uh, uh, the time between uh, this departure and him coming to be king in Hebron. And uh, Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for David and we're grateful for his part in your sons uh, coming to this earth. We're grateful for the great lessons in his life good and bad. Uh, We'd ask that we would be Alert to the hearts of those around us. In your son's name, amen.